Well, we're going to close out today our sermon series on uh, the most important truth of all. And we've talked about the fact that God exists and he exists as a trinity. God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. I'm going to kind of do an exercise here. So what I want to ask you to do is I want you to close your eyes and I'm going to mention a name. And I want you to just uh, picture in your heart what that name kind of might look like. What, what does it look like when I mention this name? So close your eyes now. God the Father. Now, I hope that you didn't get a picture of an old man in a rocking chair sitting on a cloud, you know. I hope it went beyond that. Maybe it was a bright light or something like that. Okay, let's try it again. Close your eyes. God the Son. Now, maybe that was a little easier to do because there's all sorts of artistic depictions of what Jesus might have looked like that we see in art and in the movies and so forth. Let's do one more. God the Spirit. Uh, that one's a little harder, wasn't it? How do, you, how do you picture God the Spirit? I mean, the Bible gives us some visual descriptions, and yet... They really are not clear. For instance, in John chapter 3, Jesus talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, as wind. Now, you and I have never seen wind. We see the effects of wind, but you never see wind out there. And, and so in the same way, if you think about it, what Jesus is saying is that the Holy Spirit is the unseen God who's at work in our lives. He's not visible, okay? But he's real and he possesses the power of the Godhead. <clears throat> and what we see is the effect of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the lives of, of others. <clears throat> now, to most people, let's be honest, the Holy Spirit is kind of mysterious, right? If you think about it, we, we just can't fit him into human form. And so the, the symbols that the Scripture uses... Uh, such as oil and wind and fire and uh, a dove, they probably don't help much either. Would you agree? As we try to picture, who is this the Holy Spirit? <coughs> but the, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the Bible teaches us that the Holy Spirit, just like God the Father and God the Son, is to be worshipped, to be loved, and to be obeyed, and we can know Him personally. Unfortunately, the Holy Spirit, believe it or not, tends to be the neglected member of the Trinity. Uh, we just kind of neglect him. In fact, a number of years ago, uh, Pastor uh, Francis Chan wrote a book called Forgotten God. And that's a pretty good description of, of, of the Holy Spirit. We've just kind of overlooked him. Uh, we know very little about the Holy Spirit. And to be honest with you, some of us might be a little suspicious of the Holy Spirit because of maybe some of the excesses of other groups that have really overemphasized the, the Holy Spirit. And so today I want, to, I want to introduce you to the Holy Spirit as a person, not as an impersonal force, but really as a person, the Holy Spirit of God. See, when I say father or son, you, have a, you, you, you immediately can identify that you know fathers and sons who are persons. But when I talk about the, the Spirit, you don't think about a person, do you? You think about some kind of force like maybe Casper the Friendly Ghost, okay? And uh, unfortunately, the King James Version doesn't do justice to this because it uses the term the Holy Ghost. 
And uh, so that just muddles everything. And yet, folks, what I want you to know is that the Holy Spirit is a person just like you are a person. In fact, your spirit is the most important part of who you are. All right. So we see the Holy Spirit's impact in our lives. We see the peace that he gives, the guidance, the conviction of sin, the victory in life that he gives to us, the power for witnessing. We don't see the wind, do you? But you see the effects of wind. And in the very same way, you don't see the Spirit, but you see the effects of the Spirit all around us. So let me, uh, we're going to be talking today about the Spirit. We're talking about God here, okay? And um, we're not talking about a part of God or we're talking about how God acts. No, we're talking about God Himself. God, remember, relates to us as a trinity. Three persons in one being. We, we talk about God is one. That He's not three gods, but He's one God. The, you know, the Father is God, the, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. So there are three distinct persons in our Godhead, but there's only one God. And so I want to take a moment and let's just look at um, the movement of the Holy Spirit in history, especially in the, in the Old Testament, because that might help us to understand what the Bible is going to teach about the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in our lives. First, look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, what you find is that the Holy Spirit would come upon a person for a very a specific purpose or reason, but then he might leave. He, you know, he didn't indwell followers of God permanently. So before Jesus came to earth in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was present in the world, but he didn't permanently indwell God's followers. He came on God's people at certain times for certain tasks. For instance, King Saul in, in uh, 1 Samuel 11 and verse 6, it says, Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he went out and he fought the Philistines. But then five chapters later, we read this in 1 Samuel 16, 14, Now the Spirit of God had left Saul. Saul had disobeyed God, and, and God removed his spirit from him. That's kind of the pattern that you see in the Old Testament uh, over and over again. But what I want you to know is that God had something different in mind, in his plans. He was going to do something new. And so in the prophet Joel, in chapter 2 and verse 28, listen to what God says through the prophet. Then, after doing all those things, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. So there's coming a day after the Old Testament period when God is going to pour out his Holy Spirit on all followers of God. And, you know, during the Last Supper with his disciples, uh, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to them. Um, he repeated that promise again in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5 when he said this, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then 25 years later, I want you to keep that in mind, okay? When Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he says this, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit and we all share the spirit. Now notice in Acts chapter 2, excuse me, in Acts chapter 1, it says you will be baptized, future tense, something going to happen. But then in 1 Corinthians 12, you have been baptized, past tense. 
So what happened here to change the, the tense? And I, you know, I believe that the Bible is the, is the word of God, truth without any mixture ever. I also believe the verb tenses are inspired by God, okay? That's important as well. So what brought about this change? Well, look, Acts chapter 2 is what happened between Acts 1 and, and 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, that's what happened. In Acts chapter 2, we see the day of Pentecost, God's Spirit came to indwell believers. And folks, that moment changed everything. What I want you to know is that Acts chapter 2 is maybe one of the most important events in human history. Here is God's Holy Spirit, and it comes to permanently indwell every believer. And the unique significance of that event is seen in the signs that God gave to the church to signify this is a big deal that's happening here. There was a mighty rushing wind. There were tongues of fire that, that appeared on, on the heads of, of all those gathered in that upper room to mark this moment as something significant. Here it is, seven weeks after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you've got this sound of a mighty wind that bursts into the upper room where those 120 believers were gathered. And, and flames of fire seemed to be coming out of the top of, of their heads. And then when they went out into the streets, they were able to communicate in languages of all the people who had gathered in Jerusalem. They were there for the, the festival, the holy day of, of Pentecost. And all the people from all over the Mediterranean world heard the disciples preaching and glorifying God in their own language. See, God was making sure that no one would ever forget the significance of that day. So let me ask you then, um, do you and I have to ex have an experience just like they did here in Acts chapter 2 to be filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit? No, no, not at, of course not. Because the day of Pentecost was a unique experience as the Holy Spirit indwelt believers for the very first time. But the fact that our experience may be different doesn't in any way lessen the impact of the Holy Spirit's power in our life for giving us victory and giving us power in everyday living. Now, what we don't want to do, folks, is we don't want to limit the Holy Spirit. And how do you do that? Well, one way you could do that is we can say, well, the Holy Spirit can't do it that way. OK, let me introduce you to a, a theological term that will explain what I just said. Baloney. OK, you know, he's God and he can do it any way he chooses to do it. He is sovereign Lord. And, uh, you know, we know that the Holy Spirit, though, will never work contrary to God's character. No will it ever work contrary to God's word. But second way in which we can limit the Holy Spirit is to say that he has to do it this way that he has to match the experience of the disciples in the book of Acts. You know what? There's nowhere in the Bible that says that. You don't have to have flames shooting out of your head. You don't have to, to, to uh, speak in tongues to demonstrate that you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, you don't have to have the power to heal or to preach or to see thousands saved. Not every, uh, it's not an experience of, of, how do, I want to, how do I want to put this? It, it's not an ex, the experience of others, but it's your, your own personal experience with the Holy Spirit that really matters. Not what others experience, but what you experience. And so the important question is, what does the Bible say? 
Not the experience of others, but what does the Bible say? We want to be biblical in this uh, regarding how the Holy Spirit works in our life of every believer. And we're going to look real quickly at four specific ways that God works, that God's Holy Spirit works in our life. First of all, the Bible teaches us that God's Holy Spirit regenerates me. He regenerates me. Now, how does the Holy Spirit regenerate me? How do you even define that? Well, that word means to give rebirth. Uh, The more common term that we're aware of is the term born again. Uh, This term born again comes straight out of the Bible. It's a term that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus when Nicodemus came to him and and asked him about eternal life. in John 3, 3, here is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. He was one of the, the religious leaders of the day. He says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So there's this need for being born again. Uh, Paul in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5 uh, really talked about this as well, the work of the Holy Spirit in regenerating us. He said this, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us. And how did he do that? Through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. See, here's the simple truth that we need to hold on to. Before I came to Christ, I was spiritually dead. Before I came to Christ, I was spiritually dead. But now, because of the new birth in Jesus Christ, I am spiritually alive. Uh, John, in his gospel, in chapter 6, verse 63, says this, The Spirit alone gives eternal life. Human effort accomplishes nothing. And the very words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So it's the Spirit who gives life, this rebirth. Now, uh, let me take apart this whole idea of regeneration, okay? What does it mean to be spiritually dead? What does it mean to be spiritually alive? Remember, our spirit is that inner part of us that connects with God uh, and relates to the God who made us. So when Adam and Eve were first created, they were spiritually alive. I mean, think about it. They had a deep, intimate relationship with God. They walked with God in the cool of the evening. They talked with God. They were connected with the God who created them. But then they chose to disobey God's orders not to eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. And when they did that, they died. They died spiritually. Uh, And and what they found is that they were, you know, immediately as a parent, they became afraid of God. They hid from God. They knew that they were separated from God. Now, let me try to illustrate it this way. Let's say that you leave here today and you go out to the parking lot, you get in your car and the dome light's not on. And you think, hmm, must be burned out. The radio doesn't play. Hmm, okay. Uh, the headlights aren't working. You turn the key and nothing happens. What is your assumption? Battery's dead. Exactly, the battery's dead. Now, it, it could be something as simple as just hooking up some jumper cables. But the possibility also exists that the battery may be permanently dead, okay? That it's not going to, jumper cables or nothing, it's not going to work. Well, in the same way, there's something inside all of us that is dead. We can turn the key and turn the key and turn the key as hard as we want to, but we will never connect with God as we know we should be. And what we have, you know, we might desire it, but 
We're not going to be able to connect. There's just something missing. Uh, we're like that person in the car with no battery whatsoever, you know, and they're thinking, man, if I just turn the key a little harder, a little more, a little more, the car will start. Folks, because of our sin, we're spiritually dead. There's no battery, okay? We need not just a new part. We need to become new people. So God, the Holy Spirit, comes into our lives through our faith in Jesus Christ. God takes us who are spiritually dead and He regenerates us. He makes us alive again through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we become spiritually alive. And, and I've shared this before, but I want you to see that word regenerate. Regenerate in the original language is a, a double word. It's a word that's made up of, of two smaller words. One word is the Greek word that means to become. And then the other word is a Greek word that means again. Now, now stay with me here because this gets a little complicated, okay? The word again in the Greek language means to repeat an act. I'm going to go out the door again. I'm going to repeat the act. But here's the key thing. The source of the first act has to be the source of the second act. Now, let me explain it this way. When you're trying to get your car started and you turn that ignition on and the, the motor starts, where did that initial electric impulse come from that started the engine? From the battery. Came from the battery. So if you're going to start the car again, what needs to be the source of that electrical charge? The battery. It's the same source. And so the truth of the matter is, if we're going to be reborn, if we're going to become again what we once were, the source of our second birth has to be the source of our first birth. What is our first birth that I'm talking about here? Go with me all the way back to the Garden of Eden when God created man in Genesis 2 and verse 7. It says, Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. So what was the source of that first life that came into Adam? Do you see it there? The breath of God. God breathed into man and man came alive. And it's interesting, the word breath in Hebrew is the word ruach. And it is a Hebrew word that can mean breath. It can mean wind. It can mean spirit. So what is that original source of man's creation? It's the spirit, the breath of God. Uh, so what needs to be the source of our new birth in Jesus Christ? The Spirit, the breath of God. That's why we can't save ourselves. None of us can put God's Spirit in us on our own. It's something that only God can do. Uh, and He does that through the Holy Spirit who comes to live in us. Now, what I want you to know, this is often a hidden transaction. I mean, God doesn't have to be showy to do something very powerful in our life. And so when the Holy Spirit comes into your life um, and, and saves you, do you get tingly all over? Do you get goosebumps? Maybe, but most people don't. You don't have to suddenly have a halo, okay, to, to show that now, you know, God's Spirit is dwelling in you. No, Jesus tells us that the Holy Spirit is like the wind. And, and think for a moment, what an amazing comparison when you see that the word ruach also is the word for wind, 
And he's talking about the, the Spirit moving in our life. And he's likening it to the wind. You don't see the wind, but you see the effect of the wind as it blows leaves, as it tossles your hair and so forth. Well, in the very same way, you see the effects of the Holy Spirit in the fruit that he is producing in your life. Your character begins growing a little more like Jesus Christ. Your relationships with others becomes just a little bit better. And your thoughts be- gradually become God's thoughts. And in fact, the Bible says that when the Holy Spirit indwells you, the moment of salvation, you are a new person. Now, before we leave this, let me, uh, let me just clarify something here. Because this idea of the Holy Spirit making us a brand new person, uh, we might balk at that and say, well, no, wait, wait a minute. I still look and act just the same as I did before I asked Christ to come into my life. I'm, I still have some of the same struggles and the same feelings and the same weaknesses. You know, if God is in my life through His Holy Spirit, shouldn't it make a bigger difference in my life? And that's a great, honest question. And I'm glad you asked that. Let me answer it with this word picture. You see, the Holy Spirit wants to make a Grand Canyon-sized difference in our life. But think about it. When When the powerful waters of the Colorado River first began flowing through northern Arizona, it wouldn't have been evident to any one of us that, wow, isn't this amazing? No, it would have been a river just like any other river, you know. Uh, But slowly, imperceptibly, and and yet certainly and very powerfully, that river was carving out the Grand Canyon. You know what? God loves to work in that way. He, you know, it doesn't look like much is happening in our lives, but He is transforming and He's changing everything in your life. And, And you can look back on last year or the year before, and you compare yourself to where you were a year ago, and you can say, yeah, God is changing me. God's doing something in my life. I hadn't seen it, but it's different. It's very, very obvious. So the first thing that God's Holy Spirit does in our life, it regenerates us. Second thing, it baptizes me. Now, what does that mean? Uh, where, do, you know, where does that come from? Listen to what one theologian wrote. He says, what is the baptism imparted to us by Christ? Sometimes we hear this spoken of as if he baptizes us with something different from himself, some sort of influence or feeling or power. The truth is, the Spirit himself is the baptism. That is, the person of God comes into our lives through his Spirit. Now, as simple as that sounds, folks, there's a great deal of talk and and even disagreement among Christians on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And folks, that's sad because Scripture makes it very plain that the Spirit was sent to give unity to the family of God. We, however, have have created disunity by arguing about the work of the Holy Spirit. Over in John chapter 7, verse 39, we read about Jesus. And it says, on the last day, the climax of the festival... Jesus stood and he shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scripture declares rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Now catch this parenthetical statement that John wrote in here. When he said living waters, he was speaking of the spirit. Now catch this. Who would be given to everyone believing in him? And then he goes on with the explanation. The Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet entered into His glory. 
So it's given to every believer. Now, how do we address this disunity about the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I think it's, it's important for us to understand that we often let our individual experiences become points of argument uh, as to how the Holy Spirit must do things. Um, let me illustrate the danger of that with a, kind of a maybe a, a little different illustration. Think back to the miracles of Jesus Christ, especially the miracles of healing of, of, of blind, healing the blind. How did Jesus cure blindness? Well, one guy, he touched his eyes. Another guy, he made mud and smeared it on the eyes. Another guy, he spit in his eyes. So think about it. Let's get these 10 guys, I mean, these three guys together 10 years later and, and say, okay, we're having a, a, a conference on how Jesus heals blindness. How, did he, how does he heal blindness? And the first guy would say, well, it's very obvious. He heals immediately. He just touches your eyes and you're healed. And the second guy says, no, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, um, he's a spitting God. He spit on my eyes and, and they were healed. And the third guy says, you all are way off base. He uses mud to heal blindness. And, and I imagine that guy went out and he started the mud in your eye denomination of churches, you know, and, and so forth, whatever. But, but look at it. How does God work through His Holy Spirit? Well, I do it this way. He did it that way to me and so forth. God didn't baptize us with the Holy Spirit so we could argue about how it happened or what it means. In fact, it's just the opposite. God intends for the baptism of the Holy Spirit to unify us and to give us the assurance of our salvation. And if we allow ourselves to get into an argument about this, we miss the point of the New Testament about the work of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't want us wondering, wondering if the Holy Spirit is in our lives or if He's not. The Word states very plainly that each of us as believers was immersed into His Spirit. And, and that assurance is essential in being able to live the Christian life. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit, look at this note here, is the placing of the Christian into the body of Christ and into Christ Himself. So I go back to Paul's writings there in 1 Corinthians 12. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. You see, there's one spirit, there's one body, and, and being baptized in the Holy Spirit is a clear picture of our unity together in the church, in the body of Christ, the church. And, and if we had spiritual eyes, Man, we could see, you know, the moment you become a believer, you're instantly joined to believers all around the world as a part of the body of Christ. That means as Christians, we can go to Tanzania. We can go to Romania. We can go to Greece. And, and even though we don't speak the same language, there's almost a, a tangible connection with those believers because we both have the Holy Spirit in us. And it, there's a connection. We're together in Christ. You realize that the, the word in Christ is maybe one of the most important phrases found in Scripture. In Christ. In fact, it's found over 150 times in the New Testament that God's Spirit puts us in Christ. You, you don't have to do anything to put yourself in Christ. God's Holy Spirit does that. The moment you accept Jesus Christ by faith, God Himself puts you in Christ through His Spirit. And so when God looks at you because you're in Christ, 
He sees you in the light of your faith in Jesus Christ. Let, let me illustrate it this way. Look at this piece of paper here. It's a pretty crummy looking piece of paper. Um, in fact, this kind of represent your life and my life. Uh, it's all stained and ripped and torn with uh, bad attitudes and uh, sorry actions and, and horrible habits that we might have, things that if we've done that we're ashamed of. It just looks pretty pitiful. It's a sad piece of paper, isn't it? But what if I put this in my Bible and I close it? What do you see now? You just see the Bible. When we come to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, He takes that old cruddy life that we have and He puts us in Christ. And when God looks at us, He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. He doesn't see the crud in our life. He sees us in Jesus Christ. Folks, that may be the most liberating thing that any of you will hear this morning. You don't have to worry about all that stuff in your past. God has hidden it in Jesus Christ and it's gone. That's what part of what it means to be in Christ. So the Bible is going to teach that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event that occurs at the moment of salvation. Again, 1 Corinthians 12. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and were all given the one Spirit to drink. And, and notice again, those verb tenses, they're important. Paul says we were baptized. Past tense. It's already happened. And, and here's another thing I want you just to pay attention to. Paul wrote some of his most profound teachings about the Holy Spirit to the church at Corinth, which was the worst church in the Bible. These guys were arguing among themselves. They, had, they were condoning um, incest between a, a man and his, his stepmother, and uh, they were constantly arguing and taking one another. They were a mess. And yet here is God saying, you were baptized. You, you sinners, I saved you and, and cleaned you up, and you've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a one-time event. And then it's also a universal experience for all believers. Uh, look at Galatians 3, 26 and 27. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And again, First uh, uh, Corinthians 12, 13, we were all baptized. We we're all given the one spirit to drink. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a universal gift to believers. Listen to these words from Billy Graham. He said this, All believers are baptized with the Holy Spirit. This does not mean, however, that they are filled or controlled by the Spirit. The important thing is the great central truth. When I came to Christ, God gave His Spirit to me. And so, as believers in Jesus Christ, we all have equal measures of God's Spirit in our lives. And that measure is all. We have all of God's fear in life. Folks, there's no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. There's no haves and have-nots, you know. Uh, never, ever think, well, I have more of God's spirit in me than they do in, the, in them. Uh, such is, is nonsense. Don't ever say, well, let me show you how to have more of God's spirit in your life like I do. 
Instead, we're to encourage one another to live out the fullness of God's Spirit in our life. Yeah, we struggle living out Christian life. But that doesn't mean that we don't have the fullness of God's Spirit in our lives, that, uh, that he, He's fully there. I think most of the confusion over baptism of the Holy Spirit comes because we really fail to differentiate between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. See, I think the Bible teaches there is one baptism and many fillings. Because we are daily to be filled with the, with the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about it in just a moment, okay? Third thing I want to mention, and we're going to go back and, and talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells me. Uh, think with me, in the Old Testament, where did God dwell? Well, in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, and in, in those early years before uh, David and Solomon. And then he dwelt in the temple. And that's where that was the place where God dwelt. And so the people would make pilgrimages to Jerusalem so they could experience God's presence. But with the crucifixion of Jesus, something happened in that temple, didn't it? Uh, remember what happened to the curtain that was uh, separating the holy place from the holy of holies? What happened to it? It ripped from top to bottom, ripped in two. And when that happened, you know what? God was sending the world a change of address label. He's saying, I no longer dwell there. Look at 1 Corinthians 6.19. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself. See, the New Testament teaches that God no longer dwells in a temple. Instead, He indwells His people. That is, the Holy Spirit comes to live in our life. And, and this experience is God's presence in our life, in every believer's life, of God living in us. Folks, that makes this so different than any other religion in the world. Our God lives in us as His followers. Now, there's several more ways that we could talk about the Holy Spirit's work in our life. He seals us in Rome. Uh, sealing a, a letter meant it, you secured it, but also you identified who it belonged to. And then the Bible also talks about that, that not only that, but the Holy Spirit is God's down payment on all the promises that He has given us. The wonder of living victoriously right now in Jesus Christ, that's just a down payment on how much more and how much greater it's going to be. Now let's jump into that last one. The Holy Spirit fills us. I find it interesting that nowhere in the New Testament Scriptures are we commanded to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now what, what I want you to see here, one is what we would call positional truth. God has put us into Jesus Christ. That's our position. That's, that's to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We're in that position. That's positional truth. The filling of the Spirit is experiential truth. That is how we live out our position. We are in Jesus Christ. God's Holy Spirit is in us. So how do we live out that position? That's what it means to be filled. And so again, believers are commanded to be filled with the Spirit. That is to be completely controlled by the Spirit of God. This command is found in Ephesians 5.18. God's Word says this, Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, as we look at this verse, 
Keep in mind that the New Testament was written in the very precise language of the Greeks. The Greek language is so much more exact than our everyday English. And so in this verse, the grammar of the Greek words is going to give us clarity as to the meaning of this. So look at four truths real quickly from Ephesians 5.18 that are implied by the grammatical construction. First of all, the verb used for filled is plural. It implies that all are to be filled. What he's saying is all of you be, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then second, the verb used for filled is present tense. It's be filled. That's a, a, a verb tense in the Greek that implies continued action. It starts and it keeps on going. It's a repeated action, something you do again and again throughout your life. It's kind of like breathing, okay? Uh, all of us need air to, to live. But you don't just one day take one gump of air and think, okay, I'm done for, the, for my life. But you have to keep on breathing, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in. In fact, the average person uh, breathes in and out 21,600 times a day. Multiply that by your age and see how many times your lungs have worked. And thank God for a miracle. Okay, think about it. So the, the, the filling of the God's Holy Spirit is like spiritual breathing. You breathe out in confession to God, claiming His forgiveness. And you breathe in, asking Him to fill you and control you and impact your life. You exhale, thanking God for His forgiveness. You inhale, asking Him to fill you. And, and then the third thing that I would mention, the verb fulfilled, is passive. That is, it's something that is done to you. See, passive verbs in the Greek language usually indicate that there's somebody from outside who's doing something inside here. It's not you and I doing this to ourselves. It's God's work in you. It's not your work that causes the Spirit to fill your life. So, you know, how do you sort out your part and God's part of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, think of it this way. Let's say I've got a sponge and a basin of water here, okay? And the sponge represents you, and the water, of course, represents the Spirit. And uh, if I were to put that sponge under the water, the water fills the sponge, right? Uh, we, we almost could say, you know, the sponge has been baptized in the water. Remember, the, the Greek word for baptized means to immerse, okay? But what if I took that sponge and I held it under the water, but I squeezed it tight as I could? Would there be much water in that sponge? Not, not hardly at all, you know. The sponge would still be in the water, but the act of squeezing that sponge, even if it was immersed in that water, would keep it from being filled. So for the sponge to be filled, what do I need to do? I need to let go. I need to take my grip off of that sponge. I would need to release my hold on the sponge. That's the experience of the Holy Spirit filling in our life. It, it's exactly like that. You and I need decide to release control of our life to God. I mean, the tighter you hold on to your life and your plans and your ideas, the more you squeeze God out of your life, what He wants to do in and through your life. But when you release control, when you surrender and say, God, I'm giving it to you, God fills you with His Spirit. Um, you know, this is the life that you're meant to, to, to live. And then let me look at the last uh, part of that verb. The verb fulfilled, it's an imperative. It's a command. God commands us to be spirit-fulfilled. It's God's command for all believers to be spirit-filled 
at all the time, and not just some of the time, okay? Remember, this: the baptism is the position He puts us in. The filling enables us then day to day to live out His power in our life. One more thing about this verse, and then we'll close. This verse really defines for us what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. Paul makes a statement, don't be drunk with wine. How do you get drunk with wine? You drink wine. You drink a lot of wine, okay? How do you stay drunk with wine? You keep on drinking the wine. Keep on drinking the wine. How, do you fill your, how are you filled with the Holy Spirit? By inviting God to fill you with His Holy Spirit. And you keep on inviting Him to fill you. And it's a daily occurrence. It's an hourly occurrence. God, fill me with your power in this moment. And, and here's the key. Think about this. When a person, we call a person a drunk, what's happening in his, in his body? His whole actions and his mind and his nervous system is being controlled by the alcohol. When we're filled with God's Holy Spirit, what controls us? It's the Spirit. It's the Spirit. That's what it means. He's in charge. We follow His leading. We rely on Him. We're completely in His hands for Him to do in, through, in us and through us however He chooses. So being filled of the, with the Holy Spirit is simply a matter of yielding control of our lives to God. Three very easy steps, if you want to call them that, or requirements or whatever for God's Holy Spirit to fill us. One is to confess and to claim God's forgiveness in your life because God can't fill a dirty vessel. If your life is filled with unconfessed sin and, and anger and bitterness, you need to get, out of, get that out of you. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to cleanse you. Claim His forgiveness that He has promised you that He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And then second, intentionally surrender yourself to God. Say, God, I just give it all to You. Today, I am Yours. Use me anyway, wherever you want me, in any, with anybody that I encounter. You use me. I'm yours today. And then you simply say, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Ask Him to control your life that day. That needs to be a daily occurrence. And you know what? Sometimes it needs to be every hour. Say, God, I just, I'm, I'm messing up here. I confess that to you. I need you to control. Take charge. Take control. That's what it means to live in the power of of the Holy Spirit in your life. That's God at work in you. Aren't you glad that not only did He create us, not only did He die for us to save us, but He lives in us to give us power and to give us victory in our everyday life. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just the amazing fact that You, God the Holy Spirit, are dwelling in my life. Teach me how to daily let go of my life and yet let you control me. Now, as we close out, would you just pray this prayer? Just simply say, uh, maybe take a moment right now and just confess to God that your life is full of anger and bitterness and uh, wrong thoughts, wrong attitudes, wrong actions. Confess that and then just claim God's forgiveness in your life. And then intentionally surrender your life to God right now. Say, God, you take control for this day. 
knowing that tomorrow I'm going to have to do it again. But for right now, I just surrender to you. And then ask God to fill you with His Spirit. That is, come and take complete control of your life. And then thank Him for hearing your prayer and giving you the fullness of the Spirit for this moment. In your name we pray. Amen.